Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. As we said last week, we are coming to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has begun that conclusion last week by talking about two roads or two ways, two paths in which we can journey throughout our lives. And this morning, there is also a pair that we are looking at, and that is two prophets. That is, who are we going to follow on this way? Now, there are several sayings that you are all familiar with that essentially teach the same truth. One of them says, you can't judge a book by its cover. And we understand that to mean that it has nothing to do with the artistic value of the cover photo on the book. It has nothing to do with the literary value of the book itself. It's just a way of saying you cannot determine what a book is about merely by looking at its cover. And obviously, it goes beyond just that. Another saying, all that glitters is not gold. And we know that that means that just because something is shiny doesn't necessarily mean that it is valuable. Or just because something looks like gold, there was something known as false gold. That is, it looked a lot like it, but in reality it had no value at all. Or the one I'm going to use this morning as my title, looks can be deceiving. All of these sayings, and I'm sure countless others, basically mean the same thing, that you cannot judge something based merely on its outward appearance. And that is also what we saw as we began Matthew chapter 7, where we were told not to judge, or at least not to judge incorrectly, but we were to judge righteous judgment. Now, we know in our day and age, it is even more difficult to judge something not based merely on outward appearance. Because even outward appearance these days can be deceiving. We used to say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Now a picture can't even be trusted because it can be altered and adjusted. It can be fabricated so that you can't even trust what you're seeing with your eyes. I don't even understand all this AI stuff But that certainly plays into this as well, where something might be artificial that actually looks very real. Our focus, of course, today is on the spiritual and specifically examining those who claim to come in God's name or to speak on God's behalf. And in reality, the truth below the surface might just be that they're not a messenger of God at all. Yes, even in the spiritual realm, looks can be deceiving. Now, as we read this text in just a moment, the terminology there is going to use the word prophet. At least it is in my version, and I think it is in the vast majority of versions. A prophet in the Old and New Testament was indeed one who spoke on behalf of God. He was not just one who predicted the future, though at times he did do that. But he was a messenger from God to the people. 
But the tendency might be for us to read this text and think to ourselves, well, we don't have prophets in our day, at least not in our denomination. We don't use that term very widely at all. In fact, we are a little bit suspect of that term, which is why we don't use it. And therefore, there are no such thing in our world as prophets. Therefore, why look at this text? Well, I want you to understand that we're expanding the word prophet And I think we are safe in doing that because in Luke's parallel version of this text, he certainly does. And so we are expanding this to refer to teachers or preachers or any other kind of spiritual leaders. So when we read it and hear prophets, just understand we're talking about spiritual leaders in general and specifically in this text, spiritual leaders within the church. Because the imagery is those coming into the church pretending to be sheep, that is pretending to be one of us, but in reality, they are wolves in sheep's clothing with a desire to devour those within. Now, you might be also tempted to conclude that this subject is really not all that important at all. After all, aren't there more pressing issues to deal with? Aren't there more issues in our world today that would be more beneficial for our time this morning than talking about false spiritual leaders? And I would say to you, not when our souls are deceived into walking the very paths that we talked about last week. You see, last week we saw that the majority of people, though many do not know it, are on the broad road that leads to destruction, And the reason many of them are on that road is because they have bought in to false theology from from false prophets without even realizing it. And if indeed our souls are the most important aspect of our lives as we claim they are, then this is an urgent matter that we need to take heed of and make sure that we not fall prey to them as well. So from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, we are looking at the fact this morning that looks can be deceiving. Beware, Jesus says, of false prophets who who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. We start with an admonition, a call from Jesus that every one of us must guard against false prophets. There is a sense in which, of course, others are guarding for you. That is, there are shepherds who are guarding on your behalf, but ultimately, all of us have a responsibility to guard our spiritual lives against false prophets. Beware, this is a command in order for us to pay attention, to be on the alert to be on guard against something, in this case, false spiritual leaders who can damage and ultimately destroy 
our spiritual lives. This is not a call for an idle glance. This is not just a momentary look in this direction. This is a constant alertness against the dangers that confront us. When I think of the word guard, I think of it in two different ways. First of all, we have guards if there is something valuable to protect. We might have a guard at the local bank, depending on what city you are in. We might have guards that uh, go with a large sum of money so that if you happen to come across one of those uh, trucks that transport cash, you will know that armed guards are with them because they are transporting something valuable and thus there is the necessity of a guard. If there is nothing of value, then there is no need for a guard. In the same way, we are to be on guard because there is something of eternal value at stake. We are not dealing with large sums of money. We are not dealing with valuable possessions. We are dealing with the state of our souls. And I mentioned a moment ago that many people are on the narrow or on the broad road to destruction and far fewer are on the narrow road to life. And the reason is in some cases exactly what we are talking about this morning, which is why I think it comes right after what we looked at last week. So Jesus poses these two roads, these ways, and he says one is very popular and that's where the majority of people are going. And one of the reasons why the majority of people are going in that direction is because they are deceived by false spiritual leaders who have convinced them that that is indeed the right way. They've not stood guard over their souls and as a result, They have embraced a false theology. They have embraced a false philosophy. There has been something that has sounded good, or as Paul said to Timothy, they have come with sounds that are tickling to the ears, and those sounds have been embraced, and now they are on the broad road that leads to destruction. How many people are going to be surprised one day when they realize they were on the wrong path? That's what we'll be talking about next week because in the very next paragraph, the terminology gets even more scary, if you will. We are very good these days when we uh, know we have a sickness. At least I know many of us are. My wife is good at it. If there is some sort of illness, some sort of diagnosis that we're looking for, we don't first go to the doctor anymore, do we? We go to the internet. We start searching. We start taking whatever the symptom is that we have and we start going all over the internet to remote websites looking for anything of value that's going to help us determine what it is that is bothering us. And therefore, we often come to conclusions, whether they are right or not, we come to conclusions before we ever go to the doctor of what is wrong with us. And some of you are even so bold as to tell the doctor when you do go there, I think I know what the problem is because I've been searching on the internet. And of course, that is helpful at times. I'm not belittling that. I'm simply using that as a comparison when it comes to our spiritual lives. Man has a spiritual disease. So why then would we accept some fine-sounding argument from anybody that comes down the line rather than researching it for ourselves and making sure we understand the truth and have the proper diagnosis and therefore ultimately the proper cure? 
We must guard our spiritual lives even as we would something that we have that is of value. But I said there were two things that come to my mind when I think of the word guard. And the second is when it comes to a military term. Guards or sentries are often posted during a battle to look out for the enemy. It is their job to see the enemy coming so that they can warn the rest of the men and women that are in that company. It is their job to see the, the danger first, while at the same time allowing the rest of the group to relax and to rest inside the camp. But if that guard is not paying attention, if that guard happens to be napping, then the entire company can be in danger because the very one that was posted to guard against the enemy was not alert. You might be surprised to find out that the Bible uses this kind of terminology on a regular basis to talk about the Christian life. Paul wrote to young Timothy and encouraged him to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He went on to remind him that a good soldier does not get entangled with civilian affairs. Because if that soldier does get such entanglement, then he is not ready, he is not alert for the battle that is ahead. He doesn't want anything to hinder him from his mission. Other statements by Paul includes the fact that we are fighting a good warfare, that we are to fight the good fight of faith. I'm bringing all of that up to remind us that we as Christians are in a battle. And I think we sometimes forget that. That doesn't mean that we are to take up physical arms and fight violently. Again, we are in a spiritual battle. Our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty through God. Leading Peter to the conclusion that we are to be sober and to be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I dare say that if there was a literal lion loose in our community this afternoon, we would be on the alert. We would be on guard. Or maybe to put it in more realistic terms, if there was a a uh, murderer on the loose in our community, and we got the news from the local police department that there was someone that they were looking for, and we could see the helicopter flying overhead searching and police presence everywhere, we would be in our homes and in, on guard because we know there is danger. And that is what Jesus is saying in this text, that there is indeed danger spiritually, therefore we must guard against false prophets. Now you say, okay, you've convinced me of that. So who are these false prophets? Well, that leads us secondly to the understanding that we must correctly identify false prophets. And that is easier said than done. I mean, on the one hand, wouldn't we say that false prophets are those who come with outlandish claims and unfulfilled prophecy they sit up on a hillside and say that the Lord is coming tomorrow and when the Lord does not we know that they are false prophets and certainly that is the case at times but those are the easy ones to spot Jesus says very clearly here many false prophets are much more sly they act like a child of God but inwardly there is something vastly different and that is why they are difficult to distinguish did you see that Bugs Bunny turned 83 this past week? 
83 years of Bugs Bunny. Those were great cartoons if you grew up on them. They were much better than the cartoons of nowadays, but that's a generational thing, I'm quite confident. However, Bugs Bunny was not the only character in those Warner Brothers cartoons. They had a host of good characters. Foghorn, Leghorn, I liked him. Wiley Coyote. But there was another pair that ties into what we're talking about here. Ralph, you remember Ralph? He was a wolf. He looked a lot like Wiley Coyote, but he was a different character. And then there was Sam. Sam was a sheepdog. And these two were pitted against each other every day. Sam's job was to protect the sheep. And Ralph's purpose was to steal one of the sheep to satisfy his own hunger. And so every day they would clock in. That was the funny part of the show. They, they acted like friends. They'd say good morning to each other. They would clock in like blue-collar workers. And then the rest of the day would be spent with, with Sam trying to protect his sheep from Ralph the wolf. And then at the end of the day, they would clock out again. And they would bid each other a good evening and sometimes say something like, see you tomorrow. But see, what, what Ralph understood was that he couldn't just walk into the, into the sheepfold there and take whatever sheep he wanted. That wasn't going to work. So he often actually dressed up like a sheep and tried to maneuver as closely as he could to one of the sheep so that he could snatch it and run. And of course, Sam tried to prevent this. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here as it pertains to the way that a false prophet operates. He goes out of his way to look and act like a real sheep, but inwardly he is a wolf whose intention is destruction. And that slyness or that deception is what makes it so dangerous. If we put this into our own terminology, it might look something like this. The false prophet Jesus describes does not exhibit some outlandish behavior that would be easy to recognize. In fact, he might look exactly like us. He's charming, he's charismatic in his speech, he is good looking, he draws people unto himself. He is a wonderful speaker whom people hang on his every word. Sometimes we wouldn't have anything negative to say about him because everything about his life just seems to exude the grace of God. But the reality is much different. I mean, even a casual reading of Paul's letters warns us of such things. Seemingly in every book he wrote, he mentioned this kind of danger. In the book of Acts, as Paul was leaving the elders of Ephesus, he pointedly tells them, I know this, that after my departure, ravenous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He knew that was the intent of others after he left that church. In Galatians, Paul is dealing with a group of believers and he says to them, I am astounded at how you have so quickly moved away from the gospel. That is, Paul had taught them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet others had come along, and they had moved away from it so quickly. The entire book of Colossians deals with some sort of first century heresy that Paul is combating in that letter. 
And there are many other occasions that I could mention here where Paul is, is trying to warn people about this kind of thing. Now, the problem with identifying false prophets is that we live in a day when many people believe that everybody is a false prophet. At least that is everybody who doesn't agree with me about everything. We are quick to throw out that word, a false prophet or a heretic. If you disagree with me about any topic of uh, theology, then you must be a heretic and a false prophet and someone to be avoided. We were at some friend's house a couple of weeks ago, and they asked us about a certain individual, a, a lady a teacher, who happened to be coming to their church in the very near future, and they asked if we knew her or knew about her, which I did not, but they informed me that on her website, there was a long list of everybody she deemed to be a false prophet or a false teacher. And so I went there and I checked it out. And there are some very prominent names on that list. Some very household names that you would know on that list. Seemingly, she has determined that everybody who disagrees with her theologically on anything is therefore a false teacher. And if that's our definition, then I'm confident that every well-known teacher or preacher is on someone's false teacher's list. I'm confident that every teacher or preacher you know has been called and is being called a heretic by someone. But if you call everyone a wolf in sheep's clothing, then of course we're reminded of the boy who cried wolf, right? If everybody's a wolf and we're crying danger all the time, then we get to the point where no one's going to listen to our cries of danger. Of course, the opposite is not the answer either. That is having no discernment and accepting anything and everybody that comes along as long as they quote scripture and seem to be on the right path. A heretic or a false teacher is not a teacher who makes a mistake. I make mistakes. Everybody who talks for a living, everybody who teaches Sunday school for any length of time is going to make a mistake. We're all human. And therefore, just because your teacher makes a mistake sometime and, and you have to go to him or her and say, well, I'm not so sure about this, or you made, you made a misstatement there, that doesn't make them a false teacher. Again, this is not a teacher or preacher who doesn't agree with you on every point of doctrine. That is, we might have some dis disagreements on eschatology, that is, the theology of last things. There are a host of views here, and just because your view doesn't match mine doesn't mean I have a right to call you a false teacher. The same is true with ecclesiology, that is, the doctrine of the church. Just because we have some differences of opinion, of opinion or even differences of interpretation of what the Bible says on how a church ought to function and how it ought to be governed doesn't make you or me a false teacher. The same can even be said to some degree when it comes to soteriology, that is the theology of salvation. We can even agree in, on some levels on that. If you're following the Southern Baptist Convention, you know that the big issue now is of course the whole debate about gender roles within the church, women's roles within the church. That is not an issue upon which we are to declare one another false teachers. 
You're not a heretic because you come to a different opinion about that issue than I do or some church does. Again, I remind you of the tier one issues that we talked about some time ago. A series I did during COVID on the orthodox doctrines of our faith upon which we must agree. And I did that series primarily because we live in a day and age when everybody is dividing over everything. And so I did that series to say, here are the beliefs that we must agree on in order to be faithful followers of Christ and the other things while important we can disagree on without labeling each other different things and yet that problem has only gotten worse not that I expected my sermon would solve it but as I look online as I read blogs online or articles it's just over and over again how everybody who disagrees with anybody is therefore a false teacher or a heretic And furthermore, it's not done in love. I mean, even when we do correctly identify a false prophet, we are still to be loving. That command has not been trumped that we are to love others. And so we are to try to correct them, but that correction must be done in love. And I see very little of that online. So how do we identify a false prophet? Well, the Bible actually gives us several ways In Deuteronomy chapter 18, I guess it's the easiest one, and that is if someone does predict some sort of future event, and that future event does not happen, then they have shown themselves to be a false prophet. Now, that's not as common in our day, but there are still those who make some prediction, and it doesn't come true, and then in order to save face, they try to justify why it didn't come true. The Bible is very clear That if someone is coming in the name of God and is saying that some future event is going to happen and that future event does not happen, they are indeed a false prophet. But that's the easy one. There's also the theology test. If whatever you're teaching leads people away from the true God, if your teaching leads to idolatry and false gods, if you misrepresent God and the gospel, if you're denying the deity or the humanity of Christ, and other core doctrines that we've talked about, then the theology test proves you to be a false prophet. Jeremiah tells us there is an ethical test. That is, your life ought to mirror your teaching so that persistent ungodly behavior gives you away. And more on that point in just a moment. So while we are to strive to identify accurately for our own protection and others, We see in this text, of course, that ultimately God has no such struggle. Verse 19, he knows the heart, and therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Eventually, especially at the last time, the judgment of God, those who are false prophets will be identified as such, and they will be cut down. A tree is cut down when it doesn't bear good fruit, because it is wasting resources it is wasting time and the one thing I remember from some of my marketing classes was also something called opportunity cost and that is not only is that tree that's not producing good fruit not uh, it is wasting resources and time but the opportunity cost which means there could be another tree in its place that is bearing good fruit so it's actually more than just the tree not bearing fruit it is the fact that another tree cannot bear fruit 
because this tree is in its place. And so it's cut down and it is only good for fuel, for fire, Jesus says. And that leads us thirdly then to understand that we must carefully inspect false prophets. We got to we got to correctly identify them, not calling everybody a false prophet, but neither calling no one. But how do we do that? Well, we must carefully inspect false prophets for their fruit. Twice in this text, the same phrase is used, you will recognize them by their fruits. Occasionally, someone will ask me, I have no idea why they think I know the answer, but they will ask me about a particular tree. If I'm out on a hike or something, they'll say, what kind of tree is that? I say, I have no idea. I know nothing about trees. I can tell if it's an evergreen, if it's in the wintertime and it's still green. That means it's an evergreen. I can tell a pine tree because there's pine needles underneath it. Uh, That's about the extent of my, maybe a cypress or something, but that's about the extent of my knowledge of trees. Except I do know that on the other side of the fellowship hall, there is a tree. And I know exactly what kind of tree that is. Maybe you haven't been on the other side of the fellowship hall, but over there we have an apple tree. Do you know how I know that? Because there are apples on that tree. So in spite of my lack of knowledge about trees, I know 100% what kind of tree that is. And anything you say will not change my opinion because that tree has apples on it right now. So the fruit tells me without any other understanding what kind of tree that is. The fruit gives away its nature. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He gives two examples. There were thorn bushes that had little berries that from a distance looked like grapes. But when you came upon them a little closer, you realized they weren't grapes at all. There were thistles that had a flower on it that looked a little bit like a fig, but they were not a fig at all. And so you could tell that they weren't. So over time, and that's important, it takes time to know the fruit. You see, that apple tree did not have apples on it the first year it was planted, whenever that was. Probably didn't have apples on it the second year, maybe not even the third. But eventually, because it is a healthy tree, that apple apple tree did produce apples. So it does take time, and that's essential, We cannot identify someone immediately. We must take time, and that's what Jesus is saying here, that over the course of time, those who are counterfeit, those who are false, will demonstrate that by their rotten fruit or no fruit at all, and those who are true, those who are real, will demonstrate it by their good fruit. And so we have to be careful not to judge too quickly. Again, that's what he's saying at the very beginning of this chapter. Judge not, lest you be not judged. And then he says, take some time to deal with your own issues before you can see clearly to deal with others. And now he's saying, it's going to take a little bit of time, but we need to inspect the fruit of those who call themselves prophets of God because the fruit will determine who they are. Now the question is, what kind of fruit are we talking about? Because we're not talking about apples. We're talking about spiritual things. So what is spiritual fruit? Well, we tend to think of visible success. That is visible, uh, our our, uh, spiritual fruit is large crowds, many decisions, and maybe big budgets. But these may or may not be 
actual fruit. I'm not saying they're not, but neither am I saying they are. We have to dig deeper than that. Remember, the broad road was popular. That's where the majority are heading and they're going to destruction. So just because a church is large or just because someone's ministry attracts a lot of people does not necessarily mean that they are successful, that they are bearing fruit. I could, in fact, name you some of the more prominent ones who I think are false prophets who have way bigger followings than I'll ever have. But that doesn't mean they're true preachers of the word. So fruit does not necessarily mean these outward signs of success. But that's not to say the opposite is the case either. You can't brag just because you have few people following you and say, I'm a true prophet. So it doesn't work that way. The Sermon on the Mount has dealt over and over again with heart issues. And that's why we have to go beyond these external things. We have to go beyond numbers and budgets and people making decisions and look a little deeper. And that means we have to look, according to Jesus, at the personal lives of the people we're talking about. Do we see righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? That's what we've talked about over and over again in this sermon. Not just external righteousness, but righteousness from the heart. We've talked about the fact that this is a kingdom-minded sermon. And so we look at prophets or spiritual leaders and teachers and we say, are they kingdom-minded or are they personally-minded? That is, they are striving to build a kingdom for themselves rather than the kingdom of God. That's going to tell us what kind of fruit they have. Or we could certainly look at their uh, actual lives and when they, their actions ultimately do not match up with their beliefs or what they say, that's an indication. Furthermore, are they leading people to faithfully follow Christ over the long haul? Or are they leading people to make a decision so that they can give to their ministry? That's two different things. And so those are just some examples of the spiritual fruit we're talking about and how we've got to go deeper than just the numbers and the, and the people and determine what kind of fruit they are producing. But I want to say one more thing. I said at the outset that there are two prophets here, and all we've talked about is one. In fact, there's only one mentioned in this text, but by mentioning this one, there is the implication of a second. And that is ultimately our responsibility is to faithfully follow true prophets. If there are all of these false prophets that we must be on guard against, if there are those false prophets that are leading people down the, the broad road, then the implication is there are also true prophets that we need to follow on the narrow road, which means we must not just avoid the false, but we must embrace the truth. Shepherds, of course, have a responsibility to guard the flock from predators. And that's what we see as a picture throughout Scripture. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He actually uses that same term to talk about pastors, that they are shepherds of the flock that God has given them. And so the protection then is provided by the leadership. However, that's not the end of itself. That is, the sheep have a responsibility as well. If the sheep want to graze peacefully and grow, Spiritually, of course, is what we're talking about. They must stay close to the shepherd. They must allow the shepherd to lead. So you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to follow faithful leaders, to follow true prophets, 
so that we can be led closer to God. You have to guard your own heart. I have to guard my own heart. So who do we listen to? Whose podcasts are we enamored with? Are we sure that they are faithfully proclaiming the truth? Or do we just like what we're hearing and we're really not discerning at all? Obviously, this has bearing on the church we attend. You know, so many parents especially talk about their kids as they get old enough to start making decisions for themselves about what church to go to. And I've heard it countless times in my ministry, a parent will say, well, as long as they're going to church, that's all I care about. Well, you need to care about more than that because it's not just about going to church. It's about going to the church that preaches the truth because there are many churches out there that do not. And so we have to guard against that as well. And all of this, of course, is difficult. But it is essential. And so ultimately our task is not to be on the fringes of the sheep pen looking for wolves. Our task is to stay close to the shepherd so that he can protect us when the wolves do come. So even though we've talked a lot about guarding and protecting against false prophets, I'm not preaching this so you become what some call a heresy hunter where your focus becomes looking everywhere and under every rock for someone who is teaching false gospel so that you can make up your own list. I realize there is a little bit of value in some of that. But ultimately, our responsibility is to stay close to the shepherd. Jesus said, abide in me. I am the good shepherd. The sheep hear my voice and follow me. So who are you listening to? Who are you following And are you staying close to the shepherd? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the warning that you give us here at the end of this sermon. That our path is strewn with obstacles. And some of those obstacles look like the real deal. They look like people who are telling us this is the way to go when in reality they are leading us down the wrong path. Even as we warn our children about succumbing to peer pressure, Lord, help us not to fall prey to to what is popular, to what is prevalent, but help us to discern, give us the wisdom to know the difference. And the best way to do that is for us to stay close to the shepherd. Help us to abide in you that we might readily spot anything that is different. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. So I was alluding to these verses as I concluded, but now I'll read them. Abide in me. This is Jesus talking. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And I think many of you know the next phrase. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You are dismissed.